This is Mako President Jerry Walker, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-host Michael Sanderson. Today we have a special guest, Natasha Mayhew, Mako's Legislative Director. And she is here today because we are going to talk all about the opioid crisis here in Maryland and nationally. We're going to get into how we got here. We'll talk about what's being done at the state level, some innovative county programs that are aimed at fighting this epidemic. We'll talk about some of the lawsuits aimed at the manufacturers of opioids. And then we'll talk about what is needed the most here in Maryland to end the scourge that is the opioid epidemic. Michael and Natasha, how are you today? All good, thanks. Hey there, doing great. So let's talk about how we got here. Uh, Natasha, I'll bring you in here. I know that a lot of people talk about this is sort of a cycle where people get addicted to opioids if they go to the doctor or they go to the dentist and they get, you know, 25 pills. Then all of a sudden they need more pills to keep up with their addiction. They can't afford the pills and then they go on the street to get heroin. Is that part of how we got here in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, it's been quite a process and it really been transformative over the years. So as you stated, it did start originally with prescriptions, some people getting addicted. And then once they started cracking down, making it harder to either use the prescriptions or abuse them, then people were turning to heroin because it became cheaper and easier to get. What we're seeing now, though, is powerful synthetics like fentanyl, carfentanil coming in and being cut with the street heroin or even cocaine and other drugs. And so when you get heroin, if you're a user, you might not know that there's fentanyl in that batch and therefore you could overdose because of the fentanyl or carfentanil or cocaine. You have no idea what it's being cut with when you're getting it on the street. Right. So you'll go and use what you presume to be your normal um, amount, and then suddenly you're overdosing because it's way more powerful than the street heroin you were getting. Exactly. And so, Michael, Natasha mentioned overprescribing. Maryland has been responding to this epidemic by using tools like the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program, cracking down on so-called bad docs or overprescribers. Talk a little bit about that and what you've seen in terms of the state cracking down on these folks. I I think we know that the potential for prescription drug abuse has been there for a long time. This this issue didn't start from zero, you know, three or five years ago. That's always been a concern with doctors being able to prescribe powerful painkillers. And I think everybody anecdotally knows, you know, something serious happens and, and you end up with a prescription for, for Demerol or, or one of these, uh, you know, these prescription strength opiate derived pain pills. And the doctor usually gives you some guidance and says, be careful with this. You get a small dose, that sort of thing. Um, I, I think what's kind of happened is the breadth of people who have gotten access to those kind of painkillers has expanded. Um, Their use seems to have grown as sort of an industry standard for treating serious pain. And the number of people who get caught in the switches has gone up. So that's 
part of what's fueled this whole debate. And Natasha, what are we doing in terms of this prescription drug monitoring program? We've seen these in other states, but can you talk a little bit about what Maryland's program looks like and how it's being used to try and curb this prescription drug epidemic as well? For a few years now, Maryland has worked on strengthening their prescription drug monitoring program. In the most recent iteration, they wanted to make it stronger to ensure that it was uh, consistently being monitored for abuse and diversion, and then so that you could properly respond by sending it to the right overseers, whether that's law enforcement or otherwise, uh, to crack down on that. And so the, the program works as if, so if I'm a doctor and I prescribe you a medication, I have to enter that into the, the program, and then also the pharmacist can see that information as well, so they know that if you've been here five times in the last week from five different doctors, that would send up a flag, theoretically. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're trying to target the drug-seeking behavior. So somebody goes to multiple doctors. Doctor claiming, shopping. So, so yeah, so, so I've got a back problem. I need, the, I need, I need some, something to help me out with it. You get an opioid prescription for 90 days, and then seven days later, you go. the same person goes to another doctor complaining of similar ailments. Uh, believe it or not, not that long ago, it was possible for doctor number two to not know that doctor number one had done a prescription and for two different pharmacists in the same town to be issuing the script. Um, that is the kind of thing that the government has stepped in and said, okay, let's, let's have a monitoring program so we all at least know what's going on. We cut down on the frequent flyers. What else is being done at the state level to try and address this issue? I know in the last few years, we've seen a number of bills get through the General Assembly, some aimed more at the statewide level, and then some focused on local governments. So can you talk a little bit about just what the General Assembly and the governor perhaps has done to try and address this issue statewide? Yeah, actually, there's been a lot done over the years. The governor had, a few years ago, started a heroin and opioid um, task force. They spent a lot of time going around to the different regions of the states to hear from them, see what sort of problems um, needed to be addressed. From then, they developed the Opioid Operational Command Center, where um, the goal there is to really help coordinate the efforts around the state between um, the health response, law enforcement, and other first responders, and then really to help um, bring down grants from the federal level and have them distributed to the locals. In terms of the General Assembly, they've passed a number of um, major pieces of legislation aimed at really comprehensively trying to address the problem because there's so many angles you can go towards. You'll see some, um, as we were previously discussing, to strengthen the prescription drug monitoring program. But then also, very recently, they passed some bills that would um, help uh, give a lot more funding to behavioral health crisis response programs. So I like the word you use, comprehensive, because it seems like they want everybody to be on the same page, law enforcement, folks in the healthcare community, and then folks with the purse strings as well, right? Trying to make sure that this is a coordinated response and that we're not viewing this as everybody in different silos trying to work on their specific issue. We want to bring everybody to the table and make sure this is coordinated and comprehensive. Right, right. And uh, something that we haven't mentioned was a lot of efforts uh, centered around education, um, preventative efforts, awareness, ways in order to get the word out there that this is a problem, um, things you could see if you have a relative or a right. friend, a classmate that might be going through something, that they are, there are ways to see that and figure it out. Yeah, and Michael, you and I have walked through that mock-up 
bedroom, right. you know, for your teenage kid at our conference or other conferences, this sort of goes around. So that piece, I think, is so crucial as well as getting to kids earlier and explaining the dangers of opioids and heroin. Right. I mean, one thing that's obvious about this problem is this is not a single solution kind of problem. It's not just a matter of we need to change one thing by way of public policy. You pass a bill and the problem is solved. There are lots of different stories of people getting caught in this trap. There are a lot of people in the criminal justice system who have these needs. They overlap with mental health problems. Uh, they are the cause and, and the driving force behind a lot of people who have, you know, who have you are incarcerated or problems with the law and so forth. So this is complicated in a lot of ways. Another piece of this is not only is this comprehensive in the various ways to try and get at it, but also the the players here are too. This is a real bipartisan issue. It's not just a matter of people of one philosophical view are trying to tackle this issue. This is all hands on deck. Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people used to say, oh, you know what, that's a problem in Baltimore City, but not in my county or not in my city. Folks aren't able to say that anymore. This is everywhere. And I think, Natasha, you were talking earlier, and Michael mentioned this as well. What kind of effect does this have on our local jails when they're bringing in these folks who obviously have addictions, who have perhaps mental health issues, but that has to put a huge strain on the local jails because they're really not equipped to deal with addiction or mental health in ways that a traditional mental health or addiction center could? Right. What you're seeing is a lot of people that are coming in there that have really acute problems with addiction and mental health. And a lot of the efforts now um, on the public safety end, in coordination with the public health side of things, is really to ensure that those people are diverted away from the jails and the criminal justice system and properly into treatment where they belong. And so in terms of treatment, one of the biggest issues we have here in Maryland, and I would assume across the country, are beds, right? We don't have enough treatment beds. What can we do here in Maryland? The General Assembly, I'm sure, has tried to address this with funding, but you talk about diverting folks away from jails into treatment. Michael, you know, you've been around for a long time. You've been around for different crises. This is one that is obviously huge in terms of magnitude. You said earlier this is not just one bill. You can't pass one bill to fix this. What kind of comprehensive approach is there to get folks into treatment, or does it all come down to money? Some of it's money, but I don't think that's the entirety of the solution. So, and, and like to talk about this as we know what the solution is belies the problem. I, I think I think you have you have people approaching this as a public health crisis, which it is. But increasingly, we've been seeing this treated a little, little bit like, almost like, like when you have a hurricane. There's an emergency circumstance, and it affects cross disciplines. It's public safety, it's education, um, it's community services, it's re- reaching vulnerable populations. It's a wide range of things like that. So I, I don't know that there's one solution as simple as that. Um, Finding a reliable source of beds that means usually nonprofit providers or for-profit providers who can take insurance or Medicaid or Medicare, that's part of it. Uh, But literally just finding a building where you can put 20, 40, 60, 80 beds for inpatient services, a lot of people need that kind of care, at least for a window of time. And Maryland, we're not alone in this, but Maryland just doesn't have the beds to put people who need the service. 
Yeah, big issue there, finding beds. And then you also have, I think it's fair to say, a NIMBY problem, right? Not in my backyard. A lot of people don't necessarily want these facilities in their neighborhoods. So it does make things complicated on the local level. There's always an element of that. And I mean, I think I think the nature of this crisis has lessened the stigma a little bit about people seeking treatment and staying out of the worst side of things. Uh, but I mean, it, this this is a problem that has reached every community in the state. So it's it's not like you can go into a room of people talking public policy and mention opioid problems and then think there's no conversation to be had. We've been in the room, all three of us have been in the room with our county commissioners and council members across the state. Every single county is, they are chewed their fingernails down with you know, panic about what to do about this problem in the community. You mentioned reducing the stigma. I think that is probably one of the biggest goals that we should have as a state, as a country, reducing the stigma. Natasha, we've had a number of counties release some really innovative programs that are aimed at doing just that, aimed at getting people in the door so that you know we can talk to them and reach them. One of the biggest impacts that I have seen is Not My Child. That's a documentary that has been shown across Maryland now. I believe it originated in Anne Arundel County. But how big of this issue is about reducing stigma and having people come forward, not necessarily people who are addicts, but maybe their parents, their family members, to be able to say, it's okay, we have this issue too. We should all be talking about it and coming up with ideas. A big part of it, because reducing the stigma, getting people talking about it um, is really important for making sure that people aren't afraid to come seek help and talk to their friends or neighbors um, about it. Also, legislatively, what you see is a lot of um, immunity protections and Good Samaritan protections also aimed at making sure that when people are trying to get help, they're not being um, afraid in the process that they'll get wrangled into the criminal justice system or in trouble because um, they need someone to talk to or need some, someone to help. And that also applies to, I know there was an issue where someone may be scared to call 911 if their friend overdosed. So now there's immunity for that person so that they're not scared to call the police and their friend dies. Right. The idea of of more widespread availability of anti-overdose medicines, I mean, this is the sort of thing that was a challenge three, four, five years ago as a policy issue. Um, yeah, well, is that something we really want to do? Do we have want to have all sorts of people administering these medicines and so forth? And that's an issue that's flipped, right? I mean, just talking about a stigma, the answer now is universally yes. We want teachers to have it. We want lifeguards to have it. We do a training at every conference for the Maryland Association of Counties, and we have people in the room every single time getting their training to use the Narcan or to you know refresh themselves on how to do it and so forth. Um, but just rank and file citizens carrying it around because it's it's one of those things. It's like it's like having a defibrillator in a public place. You just expect it now. There should be someone around who's got a dose ready because these things happen. People people you know fall down in your bathroom in an overdose. Yeah, I mean I got the training at the, our conference and I carry Narcan in my car now. 
Another innovative program that you're seeing that initially had a lot more pushback were syringe uh, exchange services. And for a long time, Baltimore City was one of the only jurisdictions that had um, such services operating. And recently, um, at the last meeting, Frederick had their service approved by the state. And what that really helps to do is ensure that issues that come along with drug use include the HIV transmission, hepatitis C, and other diseases and so you kind of stem it's a harm reduction um, program to help stem so really you want to make sure people are using clean needles but also how important it is to get people in the door to actually access those services because then you get them in front of you and you can talk to them and perhaps offer them more treatment right exactly so it gets them off the street gets them inside again trying to reduce that stigma get people talking i think is a very very good goal that we should be targeting and that Maryland has done a pretty good job with so far. But at the same time, I mean, this is a problem that we're, we're not winning this battle. By right? no means. Right. So, I mean, you don't want to be too negative in this conversation, but the reason why we're still talking about it in the present tense as a crisis is we've got a lot of efforts. We have a lot of people in public safety, in public health who are doing all they can. People in education are trying to reach out to kids and the populations they interact with. But we still have... I mean, horrifying numbers across the state of the number of overdoses, number of deaths, the number of people who just get caught up in this problem. Yeah, we have seen a steady rise in the opioid overdoses and deaths. And now when you talk about introducing fentanyl and carfentanil to the mix, those numbers are, you know, astronomical in terms of where they were just a few years ago. So I want to talk a little bit more about what counties are doing to try and address this crisis. I think one of the best and most innovative programs has been Safe Stations. And Natasha, you can talk a little bit about this, but my understanding is if you're a user and you need help, you can go into any police or fire station in Anne Arundel County where this program started, and you can ask for help. You can turn in your drug paraphernalia, your drugs, and you won't have to worry about being prosecuted. Is that the way it works? Right. And then from there, they have teams that will help um, get you into treatment services as soon as possible. So those are like crisis response teams. Right. And again, this is a I mean, this is about reducing the stigma. So for years, the problem was if you were a drug user and you've got you've got drugs or you've got drugs in your system and you're in a moment where you say, I want to get help, you're afraid to interact. I turn my stuff over and I'm confessing that I've committed a nonviolent crime, but still it's a crime. The idea of the safe station involves a bit of a leap of faith to say, we're not going to prosecute you for possession of drugs. If you turn yourself in and you indicate that I want to get into treatment, we're going to look past piece one to find the real issue, which is let's get you the help you need. And that as a as a matter of serving the public and dealing with this as you know, it's almost like an epidemic. Um, that's a different mindset than I think politically, the, you know, the, the, the country and, and our leadership has, was willing to have 10 years ago. Yeah, so we've certainly seen a shift there in that mindset, which is a good thing. And I should mention that safe stations, I think, are popping up in counties all across Maryland. This started in Anne Arundel. I know on the Eastern Shore, there are a number of areas where you can do the same thing. And 
that is so important for reducing the stigma and getting people to seek help. Where there's a light on, right? We've got buildings that are 24-7, you know, fire stations and police stations across communities all over the state. Um, There's a light on, and that's someplace you can go for help if you're in the moment. Now, we were all on the Eastern Shore a couple weeks ago visiting counties, and we stopped in Wicomico County. And Natasha, they had a really interesting idea. It's a partnership right between a few counties where they're going to repurpose an old correctional facility and actually try and turn that in to a treatment center, which will add a number of beds. And we talked about the importance of beds and access to treatment for people that have issues with drugs. It seems like that's a really innovative idea. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on down in Wicomico and what they're attempting to do? And I think there's also a federal component to this with some grant money, right? Right, yeah. So there is lands that did house an old um, state correctional facility. They want to renovate that facility. It's a couple of acres. It's a lot of acres so that they could have some residential treatment beds, some uh, recovery treatment beds, a one-stop shop in terms of best utilizing that space to run a couple of different programs that could help people at various stages of their addiction and treatment needs. And it's innovative because it's also a regional approach in which they hope that the neighboring jurisdictions could also be involved um, and would have some place for uh, their uh, people in need to go. And I think that's something that's being explored in other areas of the state is where you don't have enough of the resources or property um, in your county alone. How can you partner with your neighboring jurisdictions to maybe have some a center that you can all use together to address your needs. And it's, it's, it's almost like you, you, you smell from that story, which I think is, I think is interesting and it's promising, but it's almost like the free market needs a jump start. Like you, you, there's a facility that's like semi abandoned, but maybe we could prop up that building and we could get it up and running and do whatever renovations are needed. But then once you got a building, you can get the staff and then maybe you'll find there's a company who can provide the service services and process the insurance and so forth. But it's not like the free market is ready here. We don't have businesses and companies who are popping up saying, we're going to do this and and make a buck at it. Now, And why do you think that is? Because we've heard the horror stories about these facilities down in Florida, maybe, who are using some questionable tactics to get people down into treatment and they're charging an arm and a leg. But why do you think here in Maryland and in most states, we don't have that market of people trying to make a buck, like you said, coming in, they figure out the business model and they can do this? I mean, what do you think the problem is there? I don't know. It's a it's a bit of a head scratcher, I, I think. But to, to some degree, um, you know, getting into medical fields <clears throat> is different than just opening up a shop and deciding you're gonna you know do a roadside farm stand or whatever. The credentials and the the licensing and so forth that's involved in providing medical services is different state by state. These are generally state oversight regimes. So whether there's a barrier to entry there in a formal way or 
or whether it's just practically we're not as you know freewheeling as the state of Florida might be in in this among many other ways. Um, maybe that's that's the difference. But I, I think most observers would say that one thing we wish we had were more providers popping up saying we could do this. We've got a facility or we've got the staff and we can just you know run this as a business. And I think what you're mentioning with some of the places in Florida, um, those are also. I think you see a lot of the private facilities, which then become that you need to be someone who has the means right. to pay right. for um, treatment. Right. And that can, tends to be right. very That's expensive. True. So mm-hmm. the people that tend to need to be served are those people on Medicaid um, yeah. or um, of lower means. They're either underinsured or uninsured. And then yeah. then there are a lot more of uh, the government regulations versus how many beds you can have in certain facilities, how they must be reimbursed, how much providers can make on their reimbursement rates. And that that ends up making it harder for people to enter the field and successfully have um, treatment. And and so if, if, if Medicaid is not a particularly generous reimburser to physicians and other healthcare practitioners, then maybe it takes someone to lay the groundwork. Maybe it takes the Wicomico counties of the world to say, we'll do the project in hopes that We'll take care of some of the overhead, and then maybe this will be a workable business model for a nonprofit to be up and running and and be able to serve the patients who don't have the high end insurance or their own means. Right. Right. So we provide the infrastructure. We'll pay some of the overhead, and hopefully that will attract some folks to come in and and take this challenge on. Makes a ton of sense. We should also mention Queen Anne's County and Talbot County have launched a Go Purple campaign to raise awareness about the opioid epidemic. You'll see purple shirts, purple wristbands and bracelets. A number of the schools have purple banners, and you see this at events all over the place. And the goal here, again, is to get this conversation started, make this conversation be relevant around the dinner table, families talking about this. And it might be an uncomfortable you know, conversation to have, but I think getting to these kids when they're younger seems to be the way to go and making sure that kids understand just because, you know, your friends pop in a pill or whatever they're doing. Don't do that because it can take you down a road that you don't want to go down and it can happen just like that. These campaigns that we're seeing in counties, I think, are great. They're getting the word out. But as Michael said, we're certainly not winning this battle We have a long way to go, but it's good to see these innovative ideas taking shape here in Maryland and hopefully other places in the country as well. We saw the Go Go Purple campaign just yesterday visiting counties on the shore. Both uh, both Talbot and Kent County had lots of stuff around around downtown uh, promoting, you know, promoting the awareness. We are going to go ahead and take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into lawsuits against opioid manufacturers. We are seeing a number of counties and other states filing these lawsuits as well. We'll also talk about what we think is most needed to fight the opioid crisis. All that and more after the break.
Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson and Natasha Mayhew. Let's get into lawsuits against opioid manufacturers. Natasha, we have seen a number of counties in Maryland, as well as a number of states and other counties in other states, filing suit against these opioid manufacturers. And is the idea here that they knew that these drugs were addictive, but they misled the public, they misled these doctors who then went ahead and prescribed these opioids. Is the idea here to recoup the costs that counties are spending on addressing this crisis, everything from trying to provide beds to ambulance runs, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, so I think to take the first part of that, um, what the suits are seeking to determine is whether or not these manufacturers had a knowing role um, in creating this crisis, did they mislead the doctors or the public? Um, or were they pushing things that they knew would be more addictive than what people thought? And did they continue to do so after signs became more clear that things were going um, a wire? And I think yeah. you'd see reports in some states where they were being flooded with pills. And right. but it's the addictiveness right. is really probably the essential question. Is if you have a product that has that downside and you downplay it or you hide it or you sort of obfuscate it, that's probably the sort of thing that would put the manufacturer in the middle of you know partially or fully you're substantially responsible for the outcome of of the, these products. So Michael, is this similar then to lawsuits against tobacco companies? I think that's that's what everybody sees as the the model that that for some period of time there was big class action suits against the big tobacco companies that turned into a, a massive settlement uh, that involves state governments, um, but I mean. It, We don't know whether this will follow the same path, but the parallels are pretty obvious. And I think think what's happening at the government level is that state and local governments who are stakeholders here are trying to learn from what went smoothly and reasonably and what didn't go particularly well in the, the ultimate resolution of litigation against, against tobacco companies. Right. And then to go back to that second part of your question, I think that is what a lot of the hope is, not only to try and stem the uh, bad practices that might have been behind this, but also to the extent that the, the states now have to deal with the fact that people need treatment, there needs to be better there needs to be resources to address the crisis, um, that that would also be uh, recouped. And, and the counties are more direct stakeholders in this issue than than most county governments were in the tobacco issues from, from a decade or two ago. That, you know, this is something, as, as we've been talking about, this has monumental impacts on local health departments and clinics, huge impacts on local corrections. There's tons and tons of people who have been you know, held in county jail for lack of a good treatment option, but this all stems from a person having a, having a substance problem. Uh, so, you know, drawing the lines from those costs that the public has been bearing back to the sources of the problem, I mean, that's what the litigation ends up being all about. Yeah, and it seems like that is going to be difficult, you know, to try and figure out exactly who gets what money and how the money will be distributed. That all has to be figured out down the line. But the bottom line is that these suits have been filed and they're looking to hold these manufacturers accountable for potentially pushing a drug that they knew was addictive, but that they misled the public and these doctors on. Right. And right now there are hundreds of counties, municipalities, states 
that have filed suits. And I think what we'll see, similar to the tobacco litigation, is that it'll um, ultimately be consolidated. And we're seeing the we're seeing the beginnings of that. That a federal judge in Ohio has has sort of been appointed as the centerpiece for this. And even though we haven't seen a formal consolidation of cases, there's four or five or six law firms who are representing the bulk of the plaintiffs here. And it has all the all the earmarks of in a year from now or so, we're going to start seeing bunches of cases turn into not exactly class action, but they'll be consolidated under one judge. And that that makes more sense. You don't want to have Southern California rule one thing and Eastern Pennsylvania rule another thing. I mean, having some coherent theory behind all this, and it's going to be complicated. So one judge is going to be living and breathing this for some time. Yeah. And I would imagine opioid manufacturers would like to keep this out of state courts and keep this at the federal level. And that's where I agree we'll see the consolidation happen. And then that judge and potentially others are going to have to decide how to distribute this money. Also, notably, I don't think the opioid manufacturers have as much money as the tobacco companies did when they were able to pay out all of this money. So something to think about there as well. Yeah. And and I think it's probably also important that part of the litigation is not just about cost and cost recovery, but also it's about changing behavior. Right. So what everybody wants to see is not simply a, a bag of money to help us off, you know, offset the costs of all these people in the jails and all these people who need service. But at the same time, let's make sure the companies are performing in a responsible way when they have a medication that has these downsides. Let's make sure they're, you know, communicating about that, that the all, all the physicians understand it and so forth. So it's a duty on everyone, but you want to see a, a smarter chain of command for, for these kind of uh, medicines. I want to end this episode by doing a roundtable here. Natasha, if that's okay, I'll start with you. What do you think we need? What is the most important element here that we're missing that we can do to at least put a bigger dent in this crisis? I don't think any of us here believe that we can solve this crisis within the year or even two or three years, but what can put us on the right path and trying to cut the head off the snake? I would say beds. Beds, right. beds, and more beds. Beds by any means necessary. And I think it's it's wide-ranging. Um, when you talk about the criminal justice world and the people that we're hoping to seek diverted away from the jails who, for a while, were housing a lot of these people that had um, severe treatment needs. And now that we're saying, okay, well, we you shouldn't be in the jails. You need to go to a treatment facility. You still need beds that are able to hold those people that are still somewhat intertwined in the criminal justice system. So those are one set of beds you need. And then when you step outside of that system and you have the everyday people on the street, um, someone that comes in and they're knocking at the health department's door and they're saying, well, I need treatment. You want to get that person to treatment now. You can't tell them, we'll come back tomorrow, come back in a week, come back in 40 days. Because they're at the moment where it's, where they're ready and they need treatment. Yeah, so perhaps they've hit rock beds. bottom or perhaps you, you just have that small window before you might lose them, right? So right. it's so important to be able to get them right then. And then if you have someone that's had some treatment and they're not quite ready to go back to um, what you don't want them to do is go back to the same community and um, group of friends right. and areas where um, they'll be susceptible to relapsing. And so then you need some more term, long-term recovery housing, those sorts of beds. So I, 
I would say beds. Beds, beds, beds. That's the common theme is we got to be able to follow through on the pledge when someone asks for help or or demonstrates that they need it. You know, so but that's I mean, beds is what we keep hearing as we talk with 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 county leaders, um, all sorts of places. It's it's a need for beds. Yeah, we hear that across the state. I would say in addition to beds, I think the biggest thing that we can do as a state is just to continue this outreach and the communication, keep those lines open, get these conversations happening at the dinner table, at schools, even elementary schools, making sure that kids know the dangers of this. I love the innovative ways that counties are responding to this. I think kind of hand in hand what you just said, the safe station and having these crisis response teams so that when someone does show up, you're immediately able to assess their situation, get them into treatment because that's the only window you have. I think that's fantastic. I also love the idea of providing more folks with Narcan. As, you know, as terrible as it sounds to say everybody should be walking around with Narcan, I think we need to be realistic and understand that that Narcan in your pocket could easily save somebody's life. And then just more innovative ideas of getting people into treatment, but that all relies on more beds, so that's too. The, that's the best practices approach. Like, you know, the governor's had a task force that's been trying to pull together the best ideas from different parts of the state. And maybe you didn't know there was a grant program over here or this county, they got their health officer who's working right in the jail with this population and this other place. They've got people embedded in the schools and so forth. But take the best ideas that are working here and there and spread them around. But you know, the, the spreading of good ideas, sure, right? What do you think is the biggest component that can help Maryland get through this epidemic? So, I mean, I think we've we've seen in Annapolis and the legislature with the various state agencies who are engaged and with county leaders, everybody has been trying to do all the things we've talked about. But to be to be just blunt about it, what this situation needs is more cash. That, that funding for the beds, funding to expand the reach of the programs that are working here and working there. Um, it, it may be that this ends up being the underlying principle. And I, I, I think people are, are right to be reluctant to say you just throw money at every problem. But as a practical matter, there's a lot of this problem that just requires money. And if it's our fellow human beings, it's our neighbors and friends who are the victims of this scourge, then we have to decide, is this enough of a priority to put our money where our mouth is? And counties are facing that as a challenge. This is not the kind of thing that you run for a county commissioner thinking, this is what I'm going to be about. But this is where you are in your community. And if you're in the health department at the state or you're in the state legislature, um, this has to be a funding priority. And that is not a challenge. That's not an easy thing for anybody to tackle. Um, you know, finding the money is not an easy part of public public service, but that's an undercurrent to all of this. So this needs to be a partnership between the federal, state and local governments and having that money flowing down from the feds, from the state to the locals where the action is, quite frankly, I think that's a big component, and I think you're right. The stuff that Natasha and I talked about requires money. So at the end of the day, the biggest need right now is money. To some degree, I think yeah. that's that that's part of where we are. And, I mean, this isn't MAKO advocacy saying this is what the association believes in, but I think I think everybody who gets exposed to the, the 
depth and breadth of this problem comes away with a sense that there's more we can and need to be doing. And Natasha, we've seen some money flowing down from the state to the locals. I, I guess that's a good start, but we're going to need more and more money to keep these programs going, to get more beds, to be able to start these programs that counties are running. So I know the state has stepped up, but this is going to require more and more each and every year, right? Right. And it's a lot of money. I mean, the Hogan administration announced $40 million in, in funding for this uh year. And um, there's also a grant that Maryland's eligible for um, another $40 million from uh, SAMHSA. Mm-hmm. And so... And what is SAMHSA, just in case <laughs> our listeners don't know? It is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, federal agency. Um, and the administration has applied for funding for that, which hopefully, should we get it, we'd see um, this fall. So and that's our carve out, right? That's right. N- that's not like we can get up to $40 million if our application is really great. It's like there's a carve out for Maryland that you know, we're more or less entitled to. We should be able to pull that Exactly. Down. It's yeah. part of a billion dollar right. p- package or multiple millions of dollars package for all the states. So taking advantage of those programs is essential, and Maryland is certainly doing that. Right. All right. So I think we have covered this issue pretty extensively. Of course, we could spend hours and hours talking about this. We always have coverage on our Conduit Street blog. Natasha does a great job keeping this issue ripe and up to date. There's always breaking developments. You can follow us there and get more information. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. If you do, please tell your friends. We always enjoy folks subscribing, and we love to get the word out. We have a special podcast recording coming up at our summer conference. We're going to have a congressman joining us, Michael. Can you talk a little bit about that for our listeners in case they haven't heard us touting this event? Right. Now, I think we're looking forward to uh, Dutch Ruppersberger, um represents the 2nd District of Maryland and, and has been in Congress for a number of years. But prior to that, uh, he was a county executive in Baltimore County. He was the president of MACO, uh, worked his way through the leadership leadership of this group and and has become a real institution for our association. He's a regular face and participant at our conferences and events. Um, he's always very eager to keep us in mind on issues that come before his committee or before, before his office in Congress. And I think it'll be an opportunity for him to re- reflect a little bit on things he sees from the federal level or he's involved in representing his district where he draws from his experience as a county leader, as a county prosecutor and so forth. I'm, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Um, he's not only uh, you know, a good conversation waiting to happen, but I think it's really relevant for our listeners. Yeah, August 15th through the 18th in Ocean City, that podcast, the live recording, and you'll also learn about podcasting is going to be on Friday. Natasha, anything you're looking forward to? I know you've been really busy, too, with Summer Conference. You have a lot of sessions going on. You're looking forward to Summer Conference? Oh, yeah, of course. Everybody's looking forward to going down to Ocean City. Should be a great time. Don't miss the conference. We will see you all there. For now, Kevin, Michael, and Natasha signing off. We will talk to you all soon. Have a great day.